Our latest guest on Soundtrack, and in fact, before I get to our latest guest, I should apologise for the croakiness of my voice. Nothing more terrifying than just overuse. Anyway, back to our guest, is returning for a second visit to discuss a film that had an instant and lasting impact on me and has set critics purring with one boldly describing it as the perfect movie. Dark Waters sees the delightful Todd Haynes direct Mark Ruffalo as real-life lawyer Robert Billet, taking on American chemical giant DuPont on behalf of plaintiffs in West Virginia. Now, though Todd draws inspiration from classic conspiracy thrillers such as All the President's Men, he is ultimately more interested in his characters, the victims, and how their lives are quietly devastated by cynical forces way beyond their control. As well as featuring plenty of country music as source, Dark Waters is beautifully scored by Marcello Zarvos. And it's with one of Marcello's cues that we begin filing the suit. It's so nice to see you. I just worked out it was April 2018 that we last spoke uh, for Wonderstruck. Oh, yeah. When you were in town, we dived oh, yeah. into music and talking about your wonderful relationship with music and crafting music throughout all your films. So it's so great to have you back. Thank you so much. Um, and Dark Waters, congratulations. Thank you so much. It's such a, it's so many things, this film, I think. It's, yeah. It serves so many purposes. It's a great piece of filmmaking, you know, in terms of to sit down and watch a film. But I think there is a, a much more important purpose for this film I think than just pure entertainment I hope you take that as a compliment no I do absolutely thank you and I wondered if that was part of the reason for for wanting to make this film and I guess a bigger question as well is do you think it's important for cinema to address issues and start conversations whereas a normal news story or journalistic approach might not have the same impact well yes absolutely so there's a lot of questions there's a lot of questions in that (laughs) but but they all are relevant to this film you know truth telling is a tricky premise in in fiction fictional film yeah and we don't often comfortably receive truths in movies because movies are such a combination of truth and falsehood And, and in a way 
it's what I've always loved about narrative and, and felt interested in as a filmmaker. And in a way, there's an ambivalence in that yeah. that I also enjoy exploring in my work. And righteous truth is a hard thing to depict, to have sort of handed to a viewer in a, in a complete form. And mm. it's often more what we look for in documentaries than in dramatic films. So the real key is to have it be something we experience emotionally, I think. Yeah. That's where we feel the truth have meaning to our lives and our experiences. And with a film like this, uh, there were challenges, of course, in how to tell this kind of a story, this complicated and, and long, long duration of a story. A story that in many cases is a third-hand story, where Rob is sort of piecing together yeah. a hidden history in retrospect. Trying to find his own truth. Trying to find his own reality and figure out what really happened. And when you think about it, when you only stop to imagine where we would be today had he not done so, because this was all functioning completely behind the Iron Curtain of industry yeah, uh, that is protected by governments and has increasingly been so to varying degrees, but particularly after the, you know, from the Reagan administration onward, yeah. a sort of deregulatory um, presumption about how industry should be able to govern itself, self-regulation, as the film describes. But at the same time, the film isn't one that necessarily rallies to a sense that they, Rob has solved all the problems yeah. for us. And so... I loved that about this material, and I think it reminded me of kinds of whistleblower films that follow a process of discovery and bring you into the sort of mystery of that discovery process, and you start to sort of comprehend the impact of how big and how impactful these stories really are. But in a way, you're inert. You're, you're stuck inside with the subject. I'm thinking of all the president's men, where we're, we're kind of locked inside the, the walls of the Washington Post yeah. interiors, as you are with Rob at Taft Law in this movie. But the implications of what these people are discovering is felt and daunting. And they sort of haunt the interiors that these people you know, um, exist in. I think it's the portrayal as well, because for me, it it wouldn't have been such a a kind of powerful reaction for me if I had been a documentary, so to speak. You kind of need this, you need those characters and those stories told by people in a dramatic way to really hit home the effects of the situation that they're in, both in terms of Rob and, you know, his kind of, his turmoil about, you know, he's in that industry and he has to kind of work a way of navigating his way. It's incredible. And Mark's performance is just, it's, it's effortless almost. Do you know what I mean? He's got this wonderful ability to just pull you in and you're right there with him. Yeah. It's, yeah, he's he's one of the greats. It's also a Mark Ruffalo character and performance that I I feel like I've never seen before. You almost don't recognize him in it. You know, there's a sense of, because he's so restrained, he's so locked up into the process, there's such a sense of mistrust about, he doesn't really look beyond the information Mm -hmm. that he is discovering in the moment. Yeah or drawing conclusions from it, you know? And in a sense, he's challenging his own resistances to where it's leading. And that puts you very much into this, into this present tense in the, in the course of the film. But it means that in moments where he breaks and in moments where the rage spills over, in moments where it hits home in his domestic life, 
you really feel that, mm. you know. And and finally, at the end, where he, it's almost a direct address to the audience saying, you can't rely on governments, you can't rely on regulation, you can't rely on systems. It's up to people to make change. And we just saw that occur. And it's yeah. been proven to us through the course of the film. And also this wonderful journey that the film and the discussion is having, you know, in in real in real world, in yeah. real terms. Time, and, yeah. In terms of how it's, you know, it's impacting proper discussions and policies. And it's yeah. what a fantastic thing for a piece of art to do, a piece of work that you've yeah. been involved in to do. Well, I mean, you, you never know to what degree that's the case. You can only do the best job you can do yeah. to tell the story and make it feel compelling and really try to create, maintain that connection to the emotional impact and cost of what is happening. Yeah. Um, and so that's really where my focus was. But I do feel like even at the end of the film, when he gets the results of the science panel's work, which takes so very long to get to, it's and it's a painful yeah. uh, trial uh, on Rob, it's, it's what we've waited for. It's what he needs to make actionable, any yeah. kind of you know, way of identifying this particular toxin to specific illnesses that then DuPont is on the hook yeah. to start protecting and paying for the medical coverage for anyone in the class from there, from there on, but it's exposed to the public. The truth comes out as Wilbur Tennant so wanted, and yet it is the saddest truth. It's the saddest good news in the world, and because it's it's a it's a horror show, and and yet that's what we're dealing with here, you know. And, yeah. and so it, it's not, it doesn't make you feel like there's a silver bullet to yeah. how to fix these problems. It puts it back in a complex way into our hands as viewers and as citizens and as the public and to figure out what we do about these kinds of things and the kind of choices that we're going to make in elections that are, that are around the you corner know, run, for you guys. coming yeah, around yeah, the corner yeah. for us and that you, you guys have been through. So, yeah, in that way, it felt honest, mm. complicated, but so important. And the most perfect choice of a piece of music for your end credits to just hit that home as well, both in terms of the voice, yeah. Johnny Cash, yeah. but also just in terms of, you know, won't back that, you know, won't back down. It's just yeah, like sure. what an incredible. I mean, yeah. you're kind of you almost like you you sort of drop your shoulders and then suddenly you kind of like, oh god, there's still a long way to go. It's yeah. so clever. It's so brilliantly yeah. used. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. No, it felt like the right <laughs> choice. It felt like yes, exactly as you say, hearing Johnny Cash's voice and the late Johnny Cash's voice at that moment, and the sort of and it's one of the more spare arrangements from the Rick Rubin records of the late Johnny Cash, that, that series of records that they produced together that were so remarkable. Um, and that Tom Petty song yeah. sort of says it all, you know, yeah. in the most succinct and direct way. Well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. Gonna stand my ground Won't be turned around And I'll keep this world from dragging me down Gonna stand my ground And I won't back down Hey, baby There ain't no easy way out 
He's talking to you. to you. It's just yeah. Yeah. So, was true. that an easy, easy decision to come to, or once did you... we once we found it? <laughs> That's the and one. <laughs> once we used it, and once it was used to uh, play to the little montage yeah. showing the pe- the real people from Parkersburg and Ohio who were in who played a role in the film and who yeah. were around us while making the movie, but we yeah. got to put into scenes as extras. And yeah, I'm not going to name any because it's a yeah. wonderful experience uh, yeah. at the end yeah. as well for people to go. <gasps> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Was it an easy film to to get the the music right for? And did you look back at things like those those you know all the presence men and those type of things in terms of how they approached that that type of of feeling and emotion that you were trying to to, to get with the film? In terms of the the score, the source music, yeah, and, yeah. Um, there weren't a whole lot of choices, and we wanted to f- sort of be really specific and yeah. precise about what kind of country music we would be playing yeah. and how that John Denver Different, song yeah. plays sort of in this ironic way and this sort of poignant and sad way yeah. in the context of a, a, a town captured by a single employer. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is older, older than the Younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze, country roads, take me home to the place I belong, West Virginia, mountain mama, take me home, country roads, country roads. Once we played out the Johnny Cash, we really just pursued it and, and hoped we would. It was costly because it's both the Johnny Cash estate and the Tom Petty estate. Yeah. So we had to sort of prioritize, make make some priorities, of course, <laughs> yeah, as one yeah. always does. But uh, yeah, the Marcel Marcello's score also, I think, was an essential way that you really feel this sense of a sort of contaminant invading the yeah. film, you know, that yeah. that you see in the way the, the film is sort of the the color palette of the movie. And Absolutely, the, way the, the contamination of it almost kind yeah. of, yeah. It's cool, It's it's it feels degraded, and there's a sense of something not right, but that it's... It can, it links the world and the rural part of West Virginia to mm-hmm. the urban part of Cincinnati. So you feel that we're all linked in these water systems. We're all part of the same result.
why was Marcello the right man for the job? Um, he was somebody who's who, he, we actually used scorp, uh, sample stuff of his in our temp track, oh, cool. as I had in in Wonderstruck as well. Yeah. He's incredibly diverse, and, yeah. and he has fences. a real range. I love his score for fences. Oh, so beautiful! Such. We used a lot of stuff from fences in our temp track for this movie. Uh, that that is a really beautiful yeah. score. Somebody, my editor uh, Afonso had a had a has a close relationship with, and I, I had met earlier in the year while we were in post in while we were cutting picture in LA at the beginning. Um, loved him and uh, shared with him what we were doing mm. and started to talk about it, and it just felt like this felt right. That's lovely that he has that journey from temp into actually yeah. scoring. Yeah, that's exactly. like the awkward conversation sometimes where you go, <laughs> it, it really "Can you?" Um, yeah. Like we, we talked, we Wonder just Shot. fell in love with this temp track. <laughs> Can you do something about that, please? Uh, but that happens a lot. Yeah, well, a very different experience than what we talked about in the past in terms of uh, you know Wonderstruck being this gorgeous film, but particularly it, you know it needed a specific attention in how you scored it and how you had to pre on pre score it with temp music for the silent movie element yeah. and stuff as well. So and the music almost preceded yes. yeah. the editing process, became the sort of bedrock upon which the movie was built, which yeah. is very unusual.
it's so great to see to, to see, as I said, a story like this have a journey after it's left the cinema. And it's really weird. I grew up in a little fishing village in Scotland. And I remember a story, kind of a kind of, you know, fisherwife's tale story flying around about how the naval base in Rosyth used to dump nuclear waste out by an island about a mile off the coast. Hmm. My grand my uncle was a fisherman right. and he he had can died of cancer. And so myself and a family friend, we kind of tried to dig into sort of we found one article about it and then suddenly the article disappeared. And it's kind of like, I mm. wonder how many stories, Seriously. your story will almost ignite curiosity, right. you know, investigation from so many people into, not to the extent of right. of this story, but in terms of there's so much of it yeah, going, exactly. on, going on in the world today. Yeah, that there's an undisappearing process that goes on that we know has been part of the sort of practices that has sort of followed, you know corporate practices and yeah. the way that they are concealed and hidden and the carpet gets rolled up afterwards yeah. after they 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 commit their acts but yeah no it, it seems like awareness builds on awareness and yeah. information builds on a, on on information and we have people who've who've seen this film in West Virginia who all of a sudden remember that their father or grandfather died of cancer and they had never really made the direct connection mm-hmm. exactly as you describe in your yeah. in your family and you just start to see the the dots being connected yeah. and and real human experience is ultimately the truth that yeah. you can't shake off and that's what this film is ultimately revealing why did you want to make it what was the thing that you were like well to be honest i wanted to make it because i love this genre of film when it's done yeah. with nuance and complexity and makes you feel suspicious about systems of power and how they operate, but that you really feel like the cinematic language is making you respond that way. Mm-hmm. And it's the way you're looking at spaces and people within spaces that makes you suspicious about the world. And that's what I think back on when I think of movies like The Insider or Silkwood or All the President's Men. Oh, I Silkwood see I watched these. again recently, Mike Nichols. So fantastic. So it's so good. And you really will never forget the plutonium plant interiors that these these people occupy and the sort of rituals of of labor, of mm. the life of of, of menial jobs within, you know, the nuclear industry or wherever where whatever else, nuclear power. And those cold, cryptic uh, lobbies of the corporate offices at Root, Brown, and Williamson, and uh, in the Insider, or the parking garage, in all the President's Men, or yeah. the Washington Post floors, or that they speak to um, a sort of I don't know conspiracy of of arc- in, in, expressed in architectural means yeah. and in a sense of space that where the walls are sort of closing in on these individuals. And the bigger the stories that they uncover get, the smaller their lives become in a way, the more cut off they are from yeah. each other. And that's the heartbreaking part because you see the cost that they that they undergo and the tests that they wage um, through their courage and persistence. It's like the report. I don't know if you've seen the report this year as well, which is a similar yeah. thing in terms of I haven't seen Adam's character. And he's, you know, they're, they're sent to this almost cell underground. It's their office. And they're right. given this room that's kind of, you know, the light in is so stark and kind of, and yeah. sort of blinding. And it's this 
horrendous kind of really claustrophobic environment that they're yeah. and one by one almost his team kind of they just lose it and they can't cope and they leave and he's just surrounded by this information and this it, you feel it almost kind of engulfing you as a viewer kind of thing the weight right. of the responsibility yeah. that's placed on him it's really yeah. such a clever way to and enhance it's, again it's the, documents yeah. that he's going unearthing yeah. right and yeah. trying to find the narrative through line yeah. and organize into a story yeah I'm really excited to see um, when I look at what you potentially are doing next as well. Something very different if yeah. it is to the Peggy Lee project. No, the next thing I'm oh, doing okay. is actually a documentary on the Velvet Underground. Oh, amazing. Well, I had the yeah. two down. I wasn't yeah, sure which yeah. one. Yeah. No, Peggy, Peggy is sort of not really happening right now. Okay. But the Velvet Underground is very much happening. Yes. And that has been thrilling, actually. I bet. Yeah, it's been great. Is it a documentary or is it's it? It's a documentary. Oh, it's wow. my first documentary. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's going to be a documentary like, I don't know, a documentary I've never seen before. Great. Because uh, it really draws from the experimental language and culture of early, mid-60s New York, you know? Yeah. Which is really what produced that particular band. Yeah. And it linked f experimental film with experimental art, with, with pop art and visual art and happenings and the way that all of these mediums started to inform and cross-pollinate yeah. amongst themselves. And let, let alone just the different backgrounds of a John Cale who studied under John Cage and Lamont Young and then met up with Lou Reed who had his interest in rock and roll and Bob Dylan, but who was writing songs about heroin, you know, as early as being in high school and college. Wow. Uh, and reading gay fiction and bringing that into his sensibility. So, yeah, it's going to be something else because I really want to take us back to yeah. this lost time. Where do you start with that, with, with a project like that? Where we started was a determination that I wanted the people telling us the story to be the people who were there. Yeah. There, of course, there are generations and generations of bands that follow the Velvet Underground that can tell us that how important they were, yeah. how influential they were, and we've seen that before. And so we really started with people who were there mm. and who were part of the moment. But that includes people like Jonathan Richman of the Modern Lovers, who I had no idea. I knew he was a teenager and, uh, you know, when the Velvets were playing at the Boston Tea Party in Cambridge. I didn't know that he went to 87-something shows of the Velvet Underground and he hung out with them and drove them to parties and that Sterling Morrison taught him how to play guitar and Lou Reed taught him how to play guitar. And he was their little internal mascot. And they showed such patience and tenderness toward this probably somewhat obnoxious kid <laughs> at times. And it was so cool, man. It was just like, but he was there, you know, and it, and it, and it had such a fundamental uh, sort of foundational impact on his own self-expression and way wow. of seeing the world. So that was just an example of somebody who certainly did go on to have a, a, yeah. have a musical career, but who was there. Everyone from Jonathan Richmond to Jonas Mikas, who started the sort of the experimental film, sort of was the godfather yeah. of experimental cinema in, in New York City in the 60s, and who, who we were able to conduct the last interview with before he passed away. So it's been really amazing to start with all of those people. But then really just to put together an archive of, of images and, and films and yeah. music and, and clips from the period. And... Um, and really create a, a visual, nonverbal way of experiencing the music. When are we going to see it? <laughs> um, soon, I this hope. This year? I hope. We, we might, yeah, okay. we, yeah. We hope this year. 
Yeah, oh, it's man. in really it's in really good shape. We did all the interviews before I even went on to production on Dark Water. So we really oh, in a good place. Yeah. Oh my, I can't wait to see that. Mm-hmm. Also, can't wait for Peggy Lee as well because when I was reading that, I was like, I went a deep dive into just surrounding myself with Peggy Lee, with music, and oh my god, it was great. That's I was like, bye bye Blackbird. You know, I think I've listened to that forty six times in the past two days. So oh, I think wow. it's just like oh, under my skin, totally. Pack up all my cares and woe. Here I go singing low. Bye bye, blackbird. Where somebody waits for me, sugar sweet, so is he. Bye bye, blackbird. And what I also did recently was I had a really lovely time with Stephen Woolley. And we did a wonderful BFI for a whole big group of film students. And um, he's such an incredible man, him and Elizabeth, uh, in terms of what they do for for that kind of upcoming talent here in the UK as well. But in terms of what they do with the film work, and he was talking about you in in great depth with such affection and that experience of Carol. And um, I went back to listen to that, that score again. Oh, yeah. The whole soundtrack, actually, because they both, they both, they do different things. And I think Carter's score for that as well was, um, it was a wonderful almost flip of the time in terms of you, when you listen to it out of the film context, you would never put it in that period. It's, it, but then within the film, yeah. it complements everything. Yeah. It's like luxurious. Yeah. But then as its own thing, you're like, you don't associate with that Not period. particularly. Which is no, such a clever thing. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I never really thought of it in that way. It, it certainly came out of, again, the music we were working to put the film together and the mm. temp pieces, some of which were Carter's from other films. And uh, and we built from existing score music, yeah. as you do. And it felt incredibly organic to what we were doing, but we weren't trying to emulate the sort of t- sounds mm-hmm. and, and, and sort of jazz, you know, music from that particular period or, or standards from that particular period in the music, except I would say in some of the arrangements and, yeah. the, and the choices of instrumentation. I think in that way, we felt like 
there was relevance. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was. It's such a haunting, heartbreaking score. treat to be encouraged to go back and watch and listen to That's it again so cool. as well. I know. Um, I'm so excited about about this documentary and congratulations on Dark Waters. I think Thank that you. this it's a film that's kind of good as I said going to impact on 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 different levels, you know, it's a wonderful piece of entertainment in terms of go to cinema and watch, but I think that even internally the conversations that it makes you have is is um is a really brilliant and necessary thing at this minute in time. Thank I you. Think. No, it felt like it had burning relevance, of course. And it had a studio behind it that was really keen to get it out as quickly as possible, which is so rarely the case yeah. for all the right reasons, yeah. for the political reasons and for the cultural reasons and for the fact that we're heading into an election year. And there were times where I was like, wow, I've never <laughs> put something together this quickly before. And I think Mark felt the same way. We were like, holy shit. But, <laughs> but, but participant was really driving this and they want, they really felt like this has to come out. And this, this came out, you know, the first draft of the script when Mark first brought it to me was one year after the New York Times expose broke in 2016. Wow. There was already a first draft of the script then. And, you know, and, and it's a complicated story to tell with a lot of research to organize. And, and how do you tell this dramatically and all, and all of those questions? By the time I was able to really make a commitment, it was the following year, the first writer had gone and I brought in a new writer and we sort of started fresh. And then Mario himself produced the, the draft that really became this film so quickly you know with such a sense of drive and yeah. and meaning and and purpose and so that sense of purpose i think certainly certainly drove it and that that was a different experience a production experience for me that's so refreshing to hear because it's normally the other way around in terms of it is. you know you can't get any, anything made you can't, you can't get, get made and people want any excuse delay and defer and yeah and postpone and and that was hardly the case in this in, for this production for, we, for all the right reasons, as yeah. I said. Can we have Tim Robbins in more things as well? He's I just know, not in enough right? films. What's going on? Is I he just know. like lazy? I it mean, was <laughs> such a delight. It was <laughs> such a delight. And it was such an interesting, a perfect role for him to play. <sighs> he really reflected the physical sort of authority of this character, Tom Turp. And, and I think he's so interested in, in describing this kind of character who was on the other side of the system and really was able to look at it honestly mm. and change the way he sees things and 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 turn that ship around that he was that he was steering yeah. and uh, and make it do the right do the right thing 
Yeah, I was just like, oh, I saw him. I was like, oh, I missed you. Where have you been? You've I know, right? Hasn't done enough. I yeah, know. it's true. Sort it out. Anyway, um, Todd, such a treat. To Thank chat you so to you. much. It was congratulations so fun. again. Um, look forward to chatting to you about Lou Reed and the Velvet oh, Underground, yeah. please. I can't wait to show awesome. you. Thank yeah. you. From Marcello Zarvosi score to Duck Waters, that sea of boxes, running off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Todd Haynes. My huge thanks to Todd for taking the time to talk to us. Dark Waters is on general release now and really does deserve both your attention and the critical acclaim it's been receiving. Head to edithbowman.com to hear my previous conversation with Todd and indeed every single episode of Soundtracking to date. My website is also the place to subscribe to the podcast, though your preferred provider works just as well. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do keep spreading the word if you like what you hear. I promise my voice will be back to normal form next week when we are joined by none other than the fabulous... Sharon Horgan. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.